I suppose I should make a disclaimer here that, that what I have to say is not necessarily the policy or thoughts of Arizona Christian University or the Chloride Baptist Church, or not. <laughs> Okie doke. So here we are, Hitler, Haeckel Hitler and the medical consequences of evolutionary thought. I hope you understand you asked for something that's pretty heavy duty here. And it's going to be a roller coaster ride, so there's going to be ups and downs here. So Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. And I think that's a great definition of evolution in that verse. So let's see what happens here. So I like to name my outlines, and so the name of the outline is the skeleton. And the first thing we're going to deal with is the house that Haeckel built. So who was Haeckel? Ernst Haeckel graduated from medical school degree and <coughs> became an internist, in other words, uh, medical diseases of adults, and uh, was in practice for about three years. And then in 1860, he read the newly translated German edition of Darwin's On the Origin of Species, which had been written in English the previous year, 1859. And that just got him jazzed up beyond belief. So he decided to quit his practice of medicine, go back to school to get a PhD in uh, uh, sciences that are more related to evolution directly. And he did so. So he went to the University of Jena, studied comparative anatomy. He did some real excellent science, actual real good science. He studied marine invertebrates and those are the spineless critters that live in the ocean as opposed to the ones in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and he got his doctorate and then was put on faculty and became a professor at the University of Jena in Germany. Well, he was such an ardent advocate of evolution that he wanted to have proof of evolution. And since he couldn't find it, he manufactured it. He had a very fertile imagination. And he also was an excellent artist, very good artist. And so he came up with uh, these concepts of this stuff that was the transition from non-living material to the first living cell. And he gave it a name, Monaran. And he also, as a category, and then he also decided to um, give it a name of a particular species called Protomyxa orantiaca, which literally means golden mucus. And you could think of it as golden snot. All right. And so you can see here there's this amorphous, this shapeless stuff, and eventually becomes like a cell. And so all of this was total, total, total imagination. Well, another fellow, Thomas Huxley, you may, may vaguely have some recollection of the name Huxley, like Aldous Huxley, a close relative, uh, Brave New World, all this stuff, uh, dreamt up this Bathybius Haeckelae, named it after Haeckel, and Bathy refers to the ocean depth. That's the word for ocean depth, because there was this stuff that was found on it. When he took a cruise, they took a sample from the bottom of the ocean floor I said, hey, this stuff looks an awful lot like this Protomyxia orantiaca. 
Well, later on in uh, 1975, the chemist that worked with Huxley uh, realized he, he was doing some further work and he realized that the reason that this stuff from the bottom of the ocean looked like this was because the alcohol preservative in the test tube caused it to precipitate out. And it was gypsum the, in the ocean water that precipitated with the alcohol and produced this stuff. So it turned out to be, oh, this is just a chemical reaction and has nothing to do with a transition from non-living matter to the first living cell. So that shot that down, but Haeckel didn't let any of that bother him at all whatsoever. And then in the following year, he goes ahead and publishes all of this stuff anyway, and more stuff in his book, The History of Creation, which is wildly successful and had reprints, reprints, and reprints for nearly 50 years. Why? Because people were hungry for evidence, even though they were not aware that it was all fraud, fake, manufactured stuff. Well, one of the things that Haeckel manufactured was this series of drawings supposedly showing the transition from a fish-type stage to human stage in the uterus, the embryonic development of the human. And you see here at the bottom the labels of the different types of animals uh, showing this transition series. Well, the po many problems, but one of the problems was that some of these drawings he stole from his colleagues at the university and then altered them to put this together. And these other professors challenged him and said, uh, this isn't kosher. Well, out of this, Haeckel said that, and notice I say these are pre-conclusions, pre-conclusions, a different way of saying assumptions, okay? that similarities among the developing embryos uh, form this uh, series, this transition series. And he came up with this fancy phrase, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Okay, let me break this down for you. The word ontogeny means the development that an individual goes through in the womb. The, de the developmental changes that an individual goes through in the womb from that one cell until the mature newborn. Recapitulates means retraces the course of, retraces the course of. Phylogeny means the evolution of the species, the evolution of the species. So this three-word phrase means that the course of development of the individual in the womb retraces the history of the course of evolution of the species. To make that sound even more fancy and legal law, he called it the biogenetic law. Okay. Notice that's similar to what Pasteur came up with, the law of biogenesis. When Pasteur's law of bio biogenesis is life can only come from life. Quite the opposite, yet the same words, same syllables being used to mean two totally opposite things. So here you see the comparison of Haeckel's drawings on top with actual photographs of the embryos from these other species. And you, say the, you see the names of the species at the top of the slide. And you can see that there's no resemblance whatsoever. 
Okay, so this was total fraud. So when I told you that the other professors were not happy with what they said, they took him to court in the university, university court, not civil court. And there was a conviction of fraud in this year prior to the publication of his book, The History of Creation. And uh, confession was forced out of him, but he blamed the draftsman. <laughs> and he didn't bother to tell them that he was the draftsman. <laughs> A real uh, upright standing guy here. And then, again, he published this stuff anyway in 1876. He didn't let this bother him. Well, part of the stuff that he published were these concepts of these, quote, vestigial organs. Vestigial meaning a trace, a leftover from previous stages of evolution. And so he named these structures that you see there indicated by the four yellow lines, gill slits. All right, well, and then the, this structure he called the yolk sac and then the tail. Let's take a look at each of these in some detail. So the so-called gill slits, the four of these pharyngeal pouches, the correct name, pharyngeal pouches. Okay, the first one formed the lining of the middle ear and the eustachian tube. That's the tube that connects the middle ear to the uh, throat. So there we are, no gill slits. And here is a diagram showing the structure of the outer ear, the middle ear, which is outlined in blue, and then the inner ear, which is where our senses of balance uh, motion. And so these, this is what develops from the first pharyngeal pouch. Second pharyngeal pouch, again, there's no gill slit whatsoever, involves the formation of the tonsils. So here you see, you know, the tonsils that people get tonsillitis with, and also the adenoids, which are like the tonsils, but they're further back and up uh, in the throat. Also from this uh, third pharyngeal pouch, an organ called the thymus, which sits uh, basically on top of the heart, and the inferior pair of parathyroid glands. There are four thyroid glands, parathyroid glands altogether. They're little small things, as you see here. And then the fourth pouch supplies the superior parathyroid glands. Now notice, this is not a mistake, it's not backwards. The lower ones, the inferior ones, come from the third pharyngeal pouch, and the upper ones come the fourth from the fourth pharyngeal pouch. That's the way it actually happens. So these are all extremely important structures. These parathyroids are what regulate your calcium levels in your blood, for example. The thymus gland has a lot to do with your immune system. We'll be talking about that. And then there's the umbilical vesicle, okay? It's, that's the proper name for it, not a yolk sac. Never contained or contains yolk, ever. And if you think so, that's a bad yolk, and a yolk is on you. The site of embryonic blood formation, 
where blood is first made in the body is in this umbilical vesicle. Also gives rise to cells that migrate and form a portion of the intestine and arteries that serve the intestine and uh, some of the blood vessels that form the, in the umbilical cord as well as cells that migrate and end up becoming the organs of reproduction. So these are all extremely important things. This is not a leftover, not a vestige from evolution. Here is an actual photograph of an embryo in the red circle and the umbilical vesicle in the blue circle. Okay, so this is what they actually look like uh, at that stage of development. Regarding the so-called tailbone, tail, everyday usage we say, you know, I fell and broke my tailbone, right? We hear that all the time. Well, never was a tail, but it was the inferior part of the spinal column. So let's talk about this business of these, these vestigial organs. Vestige meaning a leftover, a trace, a footprint of something previously. So these are considered to be degenerate or imperfectly developed organs, structures, having little or no use, but had a use previously in an earlier stage. Well, this is totally a, an imaginary th thing because these things don't exist in our bodies. What about the tailbone, as it's called? Well, its real name is the coccyx, and it is the most bottom inferior end of our spine, and it serves a very important function. It's an anchor for muscles that form the pelvic floor, that these muscles hold in the contents of the lowest part of your abdomen. And these muscles are used to stand up, sit down, and to have a bowel movement. And so for anybody who has had the displeasure of falling and fracturing their coccyx or tailbone, as is shown here in this x-ray, they will tell you that it hurts way too much to stand up, sit down, or have a bowel movement. So it's not a leftover. It serves a very important function of muscle attachment. Well, another supposed leftover is this business of the external ear muscles. So here in the rabbit, you see here that uh, the great example where rabbits can rotate their ears to focus in on where a sound is coming from so they can locate the source of the sound. And there are some people who can wiggle their ears, it's true. Uh, but, but these external ear muscles that are in our scalp are located here. There's uh, three of them on each side. And what these are used for is uh, to, in people, is to contract and generate more heat to keep warm the blood going to the outer ear when you're in a really cold situation. So here's the kid who can wiggle the ears, all right? And then uh, here is this thing I said about contracting and generating heat to keep that blood warm. On one of my mission trips to Russia, I needed that because when I walked outside, I didn't have any covering on my head and I had this instant severe headache from the intense spasm of those muscles. It was really bad. And I mentioned it to the folks I was with and they immediately supplied me with one of these. So 
so that I could put it, and, the, and the, right away, as soon as I put that on, that spasm stopped and the headache went away. Uh, it was amazing. All right, well, going back to the tonsils here and that second uh, pharyngeal pouch, uh, you see here where they're located, and a lot of people have had sore throats due to infections there, either due to a virus or due to a bacteria, usually strep, streptococcus. And the adenoids further up and back in the, in the t very top part of the throat back there. Well, these are not useless leftovers that were put there by God for surgeons to take out and make lots of money. <laughs> um, they're a very important part of the immune system. Uh, they're the first um, interceptors of, of bacteria uh, or viruses when the uh, person in front of you has coughed on you and is transmitting these organisms to you. So these organs pick those up and use them to stimulate the immune system to make antibodies to help protect you and fight that infection. So they consist of what's called lymphoid tissue, filtering these things out and stimulating the immune system. And then people who have had their tonsils taken out do have an increased rate of developing these, uh, these various problems, Hodgkin's disease, a form of cancer, uh, asthma and chronic lung disease, than people who still have their tonsils. So there's a good reason to leave those things in. They belong there. They do something useful. Okay, regarding the thymus and the uh, inferior parathyroid glands, we said again, these are very important uses, that there are not gill slits. And that the thymus is very important for, the, for how the immune system is to function once the baby is born and out into contact with the world. The way we make antibodies uh, is that we make, uh, remember I talked about in the DNA talk about how there is splicing and dicing of the RNA to make different proteins. Well, those, those uh, proteins, uh, certain of those proteins are what make up the antibodies in our system and the cells that make those antibodies, how they, how they do that. And so what we do is God designed this whole system so that we make literally many millions, if not billions, of different kinds of antibodies just through this process of slicing and dicing the RNA. So the job of the thymus is to sort those out and see which of those will react with anything that's not us, non-self, versus which of those cells that make these things react to our own tissues. And so the thymus sorts these cells out that, that will be making part of the process of making the antibodies and causes the cells that would, would react, make antibodies that react with our own tissues to die so that we don't make antibodies to our own self. Okay, that's the job of the thymus. So the thymus is very, very busy in those earliest months and years of life dealing with all this stuff. So the lymphocytes, the cells, the type of lymphocytes that make the antibodies, or part of the process of making the antibodies, uh, are sorted out so that we don't make antibodies to ourselves, And that's to prevent us from having autoimmune diseases 
And maybe you've heard of things like lupus erythematosus. That's one of the more common autoimmune disease. Multiple sclerosis is another autoimmune disease. Juvenile diabetes is another autoimmune disease where we make antibodies that attack a particular cell type in our own body. So the job of the thymus is to prevent that from happening. And it does a very good job of that. So that's why in, uh, it's a very large gland. Now this is the relative size of the thymus in the adult, whereas this is the relative size of the thymus in the newborn, much, much, much larger because it's so busy doing its job. So, back in the 20s and 30s, when x-rays were, medical x-rays were still a much newer thing, I guess now I have to start specifying the 1920s, since we're in the 20s, uh, this was the most frequent seen silhouette of the heart on a chest x-ray of a newborn. So it's this curved, kind of a curved arc. Uh, as you'll see the arrow move here, like so. All right, that's the usual silhouette scene. But on some newborns' chest x-rays, this was seen, this very angular silhouette called a sail sign, like the sail on a yacht, a sailing ship. And this was assumed, again, due to evolutionary ignorance and arrogance, to be an abnormal thing which had to be irradiated out of existence. So these newborns were given radiation to get, make that thing go away. Having no clue what the job of the thymus was and having no clue that this just simply was a normal variant because of, the, because of being so big. So those children ended up subsequently with higher incidences of cancer of various tissues in that region because of the radiation. Okay, this is why there's this business of medical consequences of evolutionary thought. See, this, this, you know, turned out to be malpractice, okay? Finally, by the 1940s, they realized this was a normal variant and quit doing this. All right, and then here's the business of the uh, parathyroid glands. Uh, again, there are no gill slits, and mentioning here that their job is to regulate so there's four of these parathyroid glands. They're little tiny things sitting on top of the thyroid itself. And uh, so those are important. When someone's thyroid has to be taken out for cancer, the surgeons are careful to leave the parathyroids in and to not take them out. Okay, that umbilical vessel uh, with the evolutionary influence, mistakenly named originally the yolk sac, it is the site, first site of blood formation. All right, and it is uh, a pattern that goes like this. In the uh, first uh, portion of pregnancy, uh, let me correct the name for you, okay, so umbilical vesicle, not yolk sac. In that first portion of pregnancy, blood is formed there in that structure. Well, where is blood formed in us as adults? In our bones. Well, that, uh, that embryo doesn't have bones yet. So it's got to have somewhere else to make blood. And so it's made in this umbilical vesicle. In the middle portion of pregnancy, blood is then made in the liver and spleen. Isn't that crazy? I bet you didn't know that. 
liver and spleen. And then finally, in the last weeks of pregnancy, then the site shifts to the bone marrow, which is now in existence. Not only that, there are several, about six different kinds of hemoglobin made. Four kinds in the very earliest stages, the embryonic stages. A different kind for the uh, major part of the time in the uterus called fetal hemoglobin, and then it changes to adult hemoglobin. And the reason for that is the changing um, acid-base balance and changing uh, situations as the, as the embryo grows and becomes a fetus, uh, different conditions, so it needs different kinds of hemoglobin. All this is totally designed. There's no way this could have happened by random chance events. Okay, so all of these things we mentioned before is what happens with the umbilical vesicle. Um, and just, it's a you know, funny thing. Remember we talked about how tailbone is in the general use of the language. Well, what do we say after a big lunch that we enjoyed today? I'm stuffed to the gills, right? Okay, well, we never had gills, so. Never was oxygenation ever there, ever, ever, ever. Okay, and no yolk sac. Okay, you saw this already. Okay, again, you don't fall on your tailbone. It's your coccyx with this muscle attachment. These various muscles are the ones. Okay, here's where you fell and broke. And now, lies, lies, and more lies. Fraudulent similarities among the embryos. We showed you those pictures. And this phrase, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. The course of the development of the individual retraces the course of development of the species, the so-called biogenetic law. Okay, so that's review there. So hopefully this will stick in the brain. And here's the fraudulent nature of his drawings compared to the actual photos of these embryos. This brings us to the appendix. So the appendix is this small worm-shaped structure, and it's called vermiform, worm-shaped, vermiform appendix. It's at the beginning end of the large bowel, and that portion of the large bowel is called cecum, and the cecum means blind, blind area because it's a dead end. All right, so that is the location for the appendix uh, and in terms of the bowel itself. Where the appendix is found can vary among all these various places. Now, they're not normal necessarily, but this is what can happen if there's what's called malrotation, bad rotation of the gut in development, because there, there is a lot of rotation that occurs in normal development of the gut. So normally it occurs at this place called McBurney's Point, and that's where we most often find it, but it can be found in these other places, and that's why it can be a difficult diagnosis to make, even with today's CT scans. It's still possible to be difficult to properly diagnose appendicitis. Well, uh, reasons why it's not a leftover, even though some of the textbooks still say that today, is because it has a very rich blood supply. And if something that's a useless leftover, why would it have a rich blood supply? It's also the site of antibody production. It's part of the immune system. 
stimulated by organisms that get into our gut that don't belong there. And so it stimulates the production of what are called IgA antibodies here on the, the top of the three, which are made in the secretions that go into the gut itself from the appendix to fight infection in the gut. It also produces, stimulates the production of IgG and IgM antibodies pictured there. IgM is the big one that has these uh, 10 uh, projections on it. And those are in the bloodstream to fight infection if the gut, if the infection spreads from the gut into the bloodstream. Okay, the cells that actually make antibodies are um, not shown here, but lymphocytes are part of that system. It's a very, again, complex uh, series of events there. And the appendix has the same kind of lymphoid tissue like the adenoids or the tonsils for filtering out disease-causing organisms. Okay, so it has very important uses this way. And if someone gets a, a horrendous case of diarrhea and it really washes out the gut, the appendix serves as a bank, as a reservoir of the beneficial bacteria that we need in our gut so that they can repopulate the gut and reestablish that population there. Because the bacteria in our gut do lots of things for us. They help us digest our food. Uh, they can produce uh, vitamin K, for example, for us. Uh, um, uh, and as I mentioned before, the population of the microbiome in the gut affects the immune system and affects brain function and who knows what else. And then if someone's appendix is taken out uh, before the age of uh, 10, rough, roughly, uh, plus or minus a couple years, then those people have a higher incidence of Hodgkin's lymphoma, leukemia, and cancer. So you don't want to be just yanking out an appendix in a young person unless there's a real reason for it. Again, it's not there to enrich surgeons. So here is a statement. Uh, maybe it's time to correct the textbooks. Assistant Professor of Surgical Sciences. Many biology texts today still refer to the appendix as a vestigial organ. Well, in humans, that's not the case. However, in these aliens, it could be. They say, hello, Earthling. We are benevolent beings from another planet, identical to you in every way, except that our appendix has a purpose to shake with. Oh, crazy imagination. So there is one true vestigial organ in the universe. And I'll ask you ladies, can you figure out what it is? The male brain. So you see there's all sorts of goodies there. Resting lobe, interruption lobe, commitment molecule, listening particle, atom of personal hygiene, air guitar, TV, math stuff, ball sports, computer programming, love for beer and whiskey, inability to ask for directions, uh, air guitar. Well here is Darwin's original sketch in his notes of this idea of this tree from that first cell branching out and then having more complex organisms develop. 
And he wrote that in 1837. And so then Haeckel was the first one to actually expand on that idea to specifically include people in this diagram here. Now it's in German. And Menschen means top. Uh, top. At the top means man. And what was meant in a very uh, racist way was Caucasian males. All right. So Haeckel, you know, evolution was one of the reasons it was so nicely, greatly accepted in Victorian England was because it made racism uh, supposedly respectable, having a scientific basis. So one of Haeckel's quotes is, now if instituting comparisons in both directions, we place the lowest and most ape-like men, the southern Negroes, meaning southern African Negroes, Bushmen and Andamans. Andamans are dark-skinned people and islands off of uh, India. On one hand, so the Bushmen, the Andamans, and the Austral Negroes here, together with the most highly developed animals, on this end altogether, okay, and then on the other end, people like these uh, either philosophers or scientists over here, then we can no longer consider the assertion that the mental life of the higher mammals has gradually developed up to that of man as in any way exaggerated. So here's an incredibly racist statement. Well, part again, part of his imagined evidence concocted was this poster which he had commissioned Gabriel Marx to, uh, Max to uh, be the artist to uh, draw this thing and it was speechless ape man. Pitha refers to ape, Anthropus refers to man, and Alalis means without speech, without tongue. Total imagination, not even any fossil evidence to try and use to um, justify this thing. So that's the house that Haeckel built. All right, that's the house that Haeckel built. Now, how about now the room additions of others? All right, so this concept, you've seen this a lot, this type of drawing, it's everywhere of this transition. Concept of subhuman types, that people groups who haven't evolved as further along as others. So Orientals were supposedly evolved from orangutans, all right, and then from gorillas, blacks, and then from chimpanzees, we have uh, Caucasians, and then uh, from uh, baboons, Jews. This is what they taught. Okay? You laugh. But think about this. What if you're one of those groups considered to be subhuman? Okay? And these folks were serious. Okay, another quote. Nothing, however, is perhaps more remarkable in this respect that the wildest tribes in Southern Asia and Eastern Africa have no trace whatever of the first foundations of human civilization, family life, marriage. They live together in herds like apes, generally climbing on trees and eating fruits. They do not know of fire and use stones and clubs as weapons, just like the higher apes. 
It's making some pretty judgmental statements there. Probably not well observed. Okay, here's this fellow in Germany, Alfred, Alfred Plertz. First proposed the ideology of racial hygiene, cleansing of the race. In 1895, building on the house that Haeckel built. So here's a room addition. And in 1905, he and Dr. Ernst Rudin founded the German Society for Racial Hygiene. Okay. So in other words, they promoted practices to encourage those who were considered the superior race to multiply more and those who are considered the inferior races to not reproduce. Some subsequent actions were active and some were passive. Well, okay, that's Germany. Well, well, what about the effect in other places? How about Australia, where the same kind of thinking occurred? And so uh, you can see the Aboriginal population took a horrendous nosedive. These people were maltreated and even some of them were exterminated in Australia. Did you know that? Yeah. This is a clip from a movie um, called Quigley Down Under. Quigley Down Under. Great movie. Highly recommend you get a hold of it and, and see it. It might even be a, a good movie for your Friday night thing. Uh, it's not a Christian movie per se, but it certainly makes the point about the poor treatment of these folks in uh, Australia. Tom Selleck plays the main character in it. I'll just uh, not give you any spoilers here. Well, here's the fellow who was in charge uh, the, quote, chief protector of Aborigines in uh, the Northern Territory of Australia. And he, who's supposed to be protecting these folks, said, the Aboriginal has no sense of responsibility and except in rare cases, no initiative. Customs are revolting to us and they are far lower than the Papuan New Zealander or the usual African native. This guy's supposed to be protecting these folks. Well, let's go to Southwest Africa uh, you see it labeled as Namibia, but in the early parts of the 1900s, it was a German colony, and it was called German Southwest Africa at that time. Okay. And there were two particular, among the other several uh, people groups there, the Herero and the Nama, and they uh, had the nerve to revolt against the situation where there were two different sets of laws, one for whites and one for blacks. And the set of laws for the blacks were quite harsh. They dared to revolt, and the ones who weren't shot outright were chained and put into concentration camps. Okay, so this would be about 115 years ago. And they were not well fed, as you can see here. So this is in the 19 aughts. Okay, so this type of treatment. So this is another room addition to the house that Haeckel built from German authority. All right, other countries objected to what was going on here. And the response of the German leaders was, well, these people are subhuman. They're not fully evolved, so it's okay. 
one of quotes of Haeckel was, politics is applied biology. Politics is applied biology. Okay, and we'll come back to this. Well, another place where this evolutionary thought was certainly taking root was in Russia. There's a veterinarian named Ilya Ivanov, excellent veterinarian, did really good science. He developed uh, techniques of artificial insemination for horses that were the most advanced at the time. And so prominent horse people from North America, South America, all over Europe, took their prime uh, horses there and he would do the artificial insemination so that there would be many, many, many more offspring from a particular stud horse than what would happen naturally. Uh, highly successful operation there. Well, he also did this with different types of rodents and ended up proving inadvertently this concept of biblical kind, that these certain groups of rodents could be um, interbred and get successful offspring. All right, so he would deal with these. And then he turned attention to cross-breeding different species within the horse kind so that you would get these things like zebralas and zonkeys. All right. He also then turned his attention to the cow kind and crossbred the European bison with a Swiss uh, milk cow and got a beast which would be able to eat uh, not only just the nice green rich grass but also these areas where it was crummy weeds and still produce milk and meat. So this was excellent science on his part. So then he decided to turn his attention to the attempt to hybridize humans and apes. And so when this was announced, the World Congress of Zoologists met in Graz, Austria, and said, yay, go for it. And then Haeckel encouraged, uh, along with the Dutchman Hermann Mohns, these guys encouraged uh, Ivan Ulf to do this. Mohns meets with him and says, yeah, what can we do to help? The Prussian Academy says, yeah, we'd like to help you out. Soviet government gave funds to help him keep going. The British government promised funds. American Association for the Advancement of Atheism said, go get them. And then uh, Professor Klotsch at uh, Heidelberg University of Breslau uh, helped promote this. Same with this English physician, Cruikshank. The Pasteur Institute said, hey, you can use our simian facility, our ape facility in, in French Guinea, in West Africa, and go there and do your research and your attempts to do things there. And the Soviet Academy of Sciences put their stamp of approval on it. So here you see uh, uh, this fellow named England. He was an American, but named, last name England saying scientists are confident that hybrids can be produced, in other words, between humans and apes. And in the event we are successful, the question of the evolution of man will be established to the satisfaction of the most dogmatic anti-evolutionists. Guess what publication published this, the article from which this was taken? 
Make a wild guess. Okay, good guesses. How about New York Times? Okay, looks like the New York Times has never changed. All right. Well, the attempt was made to put human sperm into apes, uh, human sperm into female apes down at that French station uh, in French Guinea. Uh, none successful. Then, uh, Ilya Ivanov took 30 simians and took them to Soviet Georgia, which was the southernmost part of the Soviet Union on the Black Sea, the warmest part of the country, and put out a request for human volunteers, human female volunteers, to be inseminated by sperm from apes. There is record of at least one lady volunteering uh, from St. Petersburg who said, <coughs> basically she said, my life is so messed up anyway, might as well volunteer for this experiment. Fortunately, all of the male apes died before anything could be done. So it actually wasn't carried out, but the attempt was there. Okay, Hitler moves into the house. So the Nazi party used not only Haeckel's quotes, but also Haeckel's justifications for racism, Nazification of healthcare, social Darwinism. Boy, is this starting to sound like stuff going on close to home? So, for example, the Nordic type, the Northern European, Scandinavian, German type was considered superior. Teachers had to record various physical features of their students and record them, plot them. And th then the, the, the individuals were judged whether or not they were of the superior race or not. Through the schools. Hmm. Does this sound similar to uh, what's this called today? RCT? Or CRT, critical race theory. Okay, so this at the top in German, it says the biology of development, and this is showing the Nordic race growth through the various stages to adult stage. So this is the kind of displays they had with their racism. Okay, so folks who were designated for extermination were the physically deformed, and it was shown here um, that there's, they found graves with uh, thousands who were killed because they either had physical deformities or considered to be mentally deficient, for example. Okay, and this was published, this was a new finding in 2006 that hadn't been discovered yet. Isn't that amazing? So many years after the end of the war. So this part here, 22 of the skeletons appeared to be children ranging from newborns of seven year olds, newborns to seven years of age. Signs of physical or mental disabilities such as Down syndrome. 
according to uh, Jenner, a German historian, up to 8,000 miners died in facilities for the disabled. Additional 70,000 disabled mentally ill deliberately killed adults in death camps. How about the gypsies? They were also targeted. So folks like this were considered subhuman and were targeted for camps and extermination. But the ironic thing is genetic studies have shown that the gypsies actually uh, genetically originate from India, which is supposed to be the root source of the Aryan race, the superior race. It's ironically, sadly funny. Then there were 500 African-German children, offspring of German mothers and African colonial soldiers, who were then put into these camps and not treated well. And the Slavic peoples were considered to be subhuman by Hitler and his cohorts. Well, East Europe is mostly Slavic peoples. Uh, Hungary is an exception, but the rest of the countries, Slavic. And, and the concept that uh, Hitler had was he wanted to replace the Slavic peoples with his superior Germanic Aryan race, as he saw it. These are the territories that the German armies actually occupied. And so they developed a plan when it was discovered that the caladium, this plant here, a particular species of it found in the jungles of uh, South America, <coughs> had uh, chemicals in it that actually would cause chemical sterilization of people. Okay, so they decided, well, okay, we can manufacture this stuff, give it to all these Slavs, we don't kill them because we use them for their labor until they get worked to death, and then we, we multiply and replace them. That was the plan, Hitler's plan. So this fellow, this guy who was doing part of this research on medicinal sterilization, uh, said the immense importance of this drug in the present fight uh, of our people occurred to me, possible to produce this drug, uh, sterilization of uh, human beings, weapon, Three million Bolsheviks, uh, meaning the communists, uh, that are German prisoners, could be sterilized, could use as laborers, but prevented from reproduction. Okay, that was that was the plan. Okay, so again, uh, this would be medicinal, not surgical sterilization, and they were looking to produce it synthetically. And of course, it's well known that Jews were also a major target of the Nazis. And uh, they had to be wearing these patches. Does this kind of remind you of something going on today? <laughs> yeah. So this evolutionary thinking of Hitler was the forced sterilization. But this poster says, we are not alone at the top. And guess whose flag is at the top there on the left? The US flag. Why? Because we have been doing the same kind of stuff in this country. Starting in the first decade of the 1900s, we were having uh, laws in various states with forced sterilization of people who were considered to be candidates because they were either alcoholics, had uh, blindness or deafness, or were mentally deficient. We were doing this in the US as well, along with those other countries, those Scandinavian countries. 
So forced sterilization and the business of abortion. That was kind of two different ways they looked at this. People they considered to be of inferior races were highly encouraged to get abortions. People who were considered to be of the Aryan race were forbidden from getting abortions. Not only that, but, but people who were in territories that they conquered, who were not Germanic, but who were blonde and blue-eyed, were taken into Germany and treated as if they were of the Aryan race. So is this really Volker Heinecke, the German name, or Alexander Litau? Okay, so it was really inconsistent in how they acted. So we talked about sterilization, the abortion, euthanasia, okay, supposedly the, the word means good death, okay, so they're talking about putting the people to death. This poster says that it cost 60,000 Reichmarks uh, to keep this uh, person going who is uh, obviously in need of care and is deformed, and this is your money. So why should we keep this guy alive? Why don't we just bump him off, save money? And there's a town of Hadamar where indeed people like this were collected and taken there, killed, and then cremated. Well, how did this happen? Guess what? Through that medical establishment. And it was decreed to the physicians, okay, you play the game, you do this, or things happen to you. So the physicians were forced to participate or risk being killed themselves. Okay, coercion. Okay, so we talked about sterilization, abortion, euthanasia, and in it, medical experimentation. So various things were done to uh, prisoners of the concentration camps. Supposed in the name of medical science, um, for example, and the justification was we need to find this stuff out to, for our pilot's benefit. So how high can people be taken before they stop breathing? In other words, how high can we force our pilots to fly? And so they used these pressure chambers to simulate altitude and then see when they would stop breathing. Or they would do things like injecting them with typhus, this bacteria that causes a horrendous infection, to see what the lethal dose is. In other words, where, where does it become a problem? Okay, immersion in ice water. Let's say the pilot gets shot down over the North Sea, which is extremely cold water. How long can he stay in that cold water before it's too long? And so they would put people in ice cold water and time it and see how long it would take them to not survive putting them in the snow naked until they froze to death, the same thing. And doing really weird stuff with rewarming experiments. Shooting with poison bullets, figuring maybe if the bullet itself doesn't kill them, the infection put on the bullet or the poison put on the bullet will then bump them off. Would this make the uh, death of the enemy more certain? And then mustard gas which had been used in uh, World War I. Uh, so they, they actually, as far as I know, didn't actually employ the use of mustard gas in World War II. I think everybody decided, okay, that was bad enough the first time. Then there were girls that were experimented upon in uh, the concentration camp called Ravensbrück, 
uh, they call them rabbit girls, like they're lab rabbits, and giving them infections with the bacteria that causes gas gangrene. And again, <laughs> it's very hard to justify what they did, but uh, some I think were just plain sadistic. Uh, doing experiments in bone grafting, they would take break the thigh, the thigh bone, the femur, set it at 90 degrees so that it would heal at a 90 degree um, sh uh, angle. Not sure what the purpose was other than being sadistic. Um, at uh, Dachau and Buchenwald, they would have gypsies only have access to salt water, no no uh, regular water, and see how long they could live with the salt water before dying. Doing surgical sterilization experiments on both sexes. Collecting skulls for measurements, this business like with the children measuring various physical attributes. Uh, Strasbourg was occupied, part of France occupied by the Nazis. And so there was a, they had them collect skulls there from various uh, people types, measuring them, supposedly uh, having different characteristics for different, quote, races. Uh, collecting skin from people who were killed in the concentration camps and making lampshades out of them and using skin with tattoos as special productions. Okay. Well, who participated in these experiments? Well, there are about 200 doctors, some of them in very high positions. Was there an outcry by the rest of the medical profession? And the answer was no, as I mentioned, because the threat of death. You don't play along, you die. Then finally, physicians and medics in the Air Force, Luftwaffe Air Force, began to object when they repeated these high-altitude simulations uh, with uh, coldness, and they said, okay, enough's enough, go away. And so Himmler, you know, like number two or three guy in the Nazi regime, was furious with these, quote, Christian medical services in the Air Force for objecting. Okay, so we talked about all of these things, and now we get to genocide. So now they graduate to outright genocide, and they... It's amazing, I mean, how heartless, how cold can a person be to participate in doing this kind of stuff, where these gas chambers were used to kill people by the thousands and then bury them in these mass graves, you know. So our forces came along and uh, liberated these camps. Patty, your dad liberated a POW camp, was it? Either a POW camp or one of these camps uh, in the uh, western part of Germany by the French border. And uh, this goes back to using the healthcare system as a way to coerce everyone to submission. So even back in the 1880s, this socialized health care was started by Bismarck, and Hitler actually used that system then to complete the process, socialize health care, and then make it a part of the Nazi coercion regime. And so the physicians were forced to report things such as this child with this deformity. 
and then things, bad things would happen. So there was a book documenting a lot of this stuff called Doctors from Hell. Then there's the expansion of the house of death. And we talk about abortion here, and I showed you this uh, photo taken of an embryo, human embryo, and this was justified by these drawings. Now, certainly by 1950, we had photographs of these various embryos showing this it definitely is not the case. Yet, this kind of stuff was used with Roe versus Wade for the Supreme Court to allow legalization of abortion in 1973. Say again? Yeah, this type of stuff, yeah. Yeah, this, and this is in the textbooks. Yeah. So since 73, um, we have had well over 150 million sexual abortions in the U.S., well over. And in the more recent years, the blue line showing the surgical abortions is decreasing. But just look, even then, for 14, 15 through 18, <coughs> you add those up, and that's going to be approaching, oh, about what, uh, three-quarters of a million, just the surgical ones, and then you see the, the chemical abortions uh, creeping up. So by now, it's got to be another million, easily. And these are just the ones that are documented. We don't know about the ones that are not documented. So, yes, we can point our fingers at the Nazis, but then we have to look in the mirror and point the finger at ourselves as a nation for this going on. Well, the Mexico City policy uh, refers to whether or not the U.S. government is going to provide funds that end up eventually being used for abortion in other countries. And uh, so I think it's very interesting Okay, Reagan initiated the policy saying, no, we're not going to be funding abortions in other countries. And look how the breakdown is as to which president said, yes, the policy is in effect, meaning we're not doing it, versus the ones that say, oh, yeah, we're going to go ahead and do this. Isn't it very interesting how clear cut that is? It's black and white. The one short period of one year exception under Clinton was because Congress said, no, you're not <laughs> funding. But then that got changed again. So there are certain alignments here that are very clear cut. And then here is the signature of President Trump saying, yes, we're using the Mexico policy that we're not going to be funding abortions in other countries. Well, now the business of euthanasia in the U.S. Uh, this was when I was in my, uh, just getting ready to finish medical school, my uh, fourth year of medical school. And this uh, college student had too much to drink and he was using drugs, ended up uh, vomiting and getting some of the vomit in her airway, in her lungs, and 
uh, not getting enough oxygen to the brain and end up going into coma, but not dying. And so she was in coma for an extended period of time. And her folks said to the docs, you know, can we just not support her on the respiratory respirator and just let her go? And at that time, that was not the case. Everything was still, um, no, you can't do this stuff. So the plea was, let her die with dignity. That was the same phrase that the Nazis used, die with dignity. So finally, this, the Supreme Court in New Jersey said uh, in March of 76, uh, yes, you can take her off the respirator. And they did, and she still lived another nine years in a comatose state. Well, this became the big impetus for the euthanasia push in this country in general. Might, you might remember a fellow named Jack Kevorkian. Okay, Dr. Death. He was a pathologist. He never treated living people. He only dealt with tissues or lab, well, he dealt with lab specimens of living people or tissues of dead people. Okay, but he was all for euthanasia. And so he would go ahead and go to a person who wanted to commit medically assisted suicide and set them up, start an IV, set them up, give them the drugs that would do it in a syringe and let the person plunge the syringe themselves and knock themselves off. Well, this was against the law. And he was taken to court uh, several times and was acquitted on technicalities. And then finally, they nailed him when he did this on TV. So then he ended up going to jail and was in jail for, uh, I think, about 10 years and then finally uh, was released. But who are we to decide when we die? It's not up to us. It's up to God. As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Well, this really set off further push for euthanasia. And then Oregon passed laws saying, yes, it's okay to do physician-assisted suicide. So welcome to Oregon Hospital. Dr. Reaper will be assisting me, the Supreme Court approval. Netherlands was the first nation to legalize euthanasia. And who do you start with? The most defenseless, the newborns. So they were doing this on so-called mercy killings of terminally ill newborns. So then Washington State has its first death under the assisted suicide law. Okay, this is 2006. And then we have this professor at the University of Texas, Austin, who said, Earth would be better off with 90% of the human population dead. Every one of you who gets to survive has to bury nine. Biggest enemy we face is anthropocentrism, meaning that man is the center, the thought that man is the center of creation. To Pianca, to this guy, human life is no more valuable than any other, lizard, bison, or rhino. And as humans reproduce, the demand for resources, food, water, energy, becomes more than the Earth can sustain, he said. Well, that's because he doesn't understand how things really work. Obviously, he has no knowledge of the Lord, 
or at least I want to acknowledge it. And what gets me is these people assume that they're in that 10%. <laughs> that should survive. So they, they're self-appointed superior folks to dictate to the rest of us. Does that sound familiar today? Well, thoughts have consequences, and such as this business that that simians, meaning apes, are really just another species of people, they should have human rights. And Spain actually passed legislation saying that simians have human rights. Okay, Spanish parliament approves human rights for apes. Okay, well, all right, so did we descend from apes? Okay, so here is another Gary Larson cartoon. It came from Old Dubai. That's the gorge in Kenya where uh, Lucy was found, uh, one of the supposed ancestors of us. But she's actually been dethroned and taken out of that line, and actually she turned out to be a he anyway. <laughs> so, but do you know why Lucy was named Lucy? Because the Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, was on the radio at the time. Okay, so let's see if this will function. Okay, the point of that was Lucy was supposed to be part of this progression of evolution from ape to human, and its pelvis was exactly that of a chimp. And that's why they said anatomically impossible position, meaning anatomically impossible to be on the road to becoming human. So if you don't have the evidence, you manufacture it. Literally, manu means hand. Okay, so with his hands, he manufactured the evidence. Okay, and yet they pass this off as science. This was, this was on a national PBS broadcast. Okay, and they accuse us of not being scientific. All right, well, it turns out that hoof you saw at the beginning was they were supposing that a hoof of a big beast stepped on the pelvis and broke it. And that's how they could justify it, having the chimp shape in, instead of the human shape. It was broken into a chimp shape. Uh, other folks have looked at this more closely later on, and they, they think probably what happened was that that particular specimen fell from a very high tree. 
and uh, acacia tree, and that's how the pelvis got broken. So that's medical malpractice. Okay, school violence. I'm not going to dwell on this. There's been too much of it, just way too much of it. It's becoming almost non-reportable. There's so much of it going on. But if you teach your kids that their animals came from animals, they're going to think like animals, and there's no value to human life, and it's okay to shoot someone else. No big deal. Whether it be high schools or universities. And this is way out of date now. What about embryonic stem cells? Okay, so in order to obtain these stem cells and embryos, the embryo has to be destroyed. And the hope was that the stem cells would actually be used to be able to use people to heal tissues that needed to have new cells being able to be made, but couldn't do it themselves. Whereas adult stem cell research, even though the term is adult, after a baby is born, uh, stem cells can be obtained from the umbilical cord or from a sample of the blood and stored. And there, there are actually now banks for umbilical cord if the parents decide to have those frozen and stored so that those stem cells can be um, harvested in the future if needed. So that's the difference. Embryonic stem cell kills the embryo adult stem cell from birth onward nobody dies and you, you have cells to harvest so this is a quote here rather than a furthering discovery our government is forced what I believe is a false choice between sound science and moral values Mr. Obama said in this case I believe the two are not inconsistent as a person of faith I believe we are called to care for each other and work to ease human suffering I believe we have been given the capacity capacity and will to pursue this research in humanity and conscience to do so responsibly so what he's saying is yeah let's do the embryo thing let's do the embryonic stem cell research it's okay to go ahead and kill all these embryos that's what he's saying well here's the deal in comparison For the source, for the embryonic cell lines, or the adult stem cells from the, the neonatal, the newborn cell lines, the amniotic fluid umbilical cords, the number of diseases cured by embryonic cell lines is? Correct, zero. The number from adult stem cells? Over 100. I'd say that's a pretty clear-cut batting average zero versus 100 plus so continuing to put money into embryonics so stem research is a waste plus the death that it causes yet we have these situations where in certain countries uh, especially some of them in eastern europe but not only there infants were actually born in hospitals the parents were told that the child died but the child was then sacrificed and organs and Parts were harvested to get stem cells and other things and then shipped out to whoever would pay for it. Okay? Death for dollars. 
And then in 2015 in Louisiana, then Governor Jindal announced that there was a plan to investigate Planned Parenthood for using these partial birth abortions and selling body parts. Okay. So, of course, Planned Parenthood was most unhappy with this light being shown upon its activities. Well, today we've got forced organ harvesting going on in China. This very day it's going on. People who are um, not in support of the communist regime are being uh, put in concentration camps and are being harvested, especially those of this Falun uh, Gong faith system, but not only them. Well, the architect retards medical research. Okay, this goes back to the business of DNA, and we've talked about this with how much that most of the proteins are made. I mean, all the proteins are made by just this tiny bit of DNA, about one and a half percent. Okay, no correlation with the number of genes in a species and its complexity. Uh, many, much of DNA consists of simple repetitions. Well, we know that these are for organizational purposes. Uh, as I mentioned, the, like the library. And that the DNA that was at that time not known to have function was labeled as junk DNA. And they even called it selfish DNA as well. And there are these particular genes that are able to move around in the DNA. And we now know that those genes turn other genes on and off to respond to what changes are going on in the environment of the organism. Very highly engineered system. So we have here in this OR suite, we have the patient is junk DNA, and we have surgeons who are either evolutionists, creationists, or undecided. He says, okay, Marcus, I'm comfortable with my grass with DNA, junk DNA, how about you? Well, one of the evolutionists uh, said that these, the pro these transposons, the ones that move around and turn other genes on and off, in his ignorance at that time said, it's the, the sufficient reason of being, as they say in, in French there, is none. They just exist because they survive. Total ignorance. Okay, so this is showing the, the chromosome, the very end, the telomeres very ends to protect and so here there is replication showing that the DNA is copying itself and here is what actually looks like under an electron microscope picture as the two sets of the mother and daughter like so and then they spread out we now understand that this is many levels of function as we've already gone over and that many proteins are used with these systems of DNA and there's tremendous amount of new information. So as the surgeons are operating they keep opening up you know these Russian nesting dolls you open them up and there's another one and there's another one and another one. That, that's what they're finding out that there is no junk DNA. It stuff all has a purpose. So here's the, the bad part of it. 
This guy down in Australia said, I think this will come to be a classic story of orthodoxy, meaning the evolutionary dogma, derailing objective analysis of the facts for a quarter of a century. So this is where I said, what we know today could have been known 25 years earlier if it hadn't been for this assumption of junk DNA. In downtown Phoenix on uh, 3rd Street, just north of uh, Van Buren, is this building, and it's the Translational Genomics Institute. And its job is to take the information from the knowledge of the DNA sequence and use that knowledge to treat diseases at the DNA level. No longer to treat symptoms, but actually be able to use uh, either viruses or um, other means of inserting the normal DNA into the cells of the patient so those cells can then produce the normal stuff and be cured of their disease. That's what their job is. That's what they're doing. They are a world-class facility. So here's the back side of the building. Uh, I just wanted to show you the Palo Verde trees in bloom there. <clears throat> so here's this guy, the demonstrator, saying the end is near. And the doc inside, the proctologist, you know, that's the rear end, right? He says, I sure wish we'd find some other place to stand. <laughs> okay, the tragic legacy is this. I thought I'd let you know about my surprise windfall. I won the Nigerian lottery according to an email I received from a Nigerian prince. He holds the sum of $1 million in my name, and he wants to send it to me free. All I have to do is give him my bank account numbers and send him $500 U.S. cash to show my good faith so he can transfer the money. And then I got another email. It's from a Kenyan prince who wants to give me free health care for life. Okay, so this would be what? A rerun of socialized medicine in Nazi Germany. All I have to give him is my bank account number, social security number, confidential health information, and pay 700 bucks per month for a policy with only a $10,000 deductible. Then he can make it happen. Am I on a roll or what? Well, the folks in that administration, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel and Rahm Emanuel, who's now the uh, mayor of Chicago, right? Or was, was the mayor of Chicago, yeah. Yeah, there's a yeah, Lightfoot now. We're architects of this kind of stuff, this kind of thinking. What are the potential cost savings from legalizing physician assistant suicide? Okay? An actual article. That's an article title. So he wrote, when implemented, the complete lives system would produce a priority curve in which individuals between the ages of fifteen and forty would get the most substantial chance of getting care. Whereas the youngest and oldest people get chances that are attenuated, fancy way of saying lessened, the complete life system is least vulnerable to corruption. And he calls it a complete life system. It's an uh, it's a upside down. So here's the curve. So this is showing your chances of getting care depending upon your age. Okay. I, this is a good example of Newspeak. Remember Newspeak from 1984? The book, 1984, where everything was said one way, but it meant the opposite. 
So in other words, if you're not, notice I added the word rationing there. That's what it's really about. Any health care funding plan that is just, equitable, civilized, humane must, must redistribute wealth from the richer to the poorer and less fortunate. Progressive poly regime will control and rationalize, just put ration, not rationalize, ration control supply. Okay, well, we went through a time with the VA system not being well run, thanks to our, pres our, our President Trump. It has been very well cleaned up. So VA care was much straightened out. After, actually, Phoenix was one of the epicenters where the information started coming out of how poorly things were being done. So citizens won't have a chance to challenge the judgments made by the health service. You'll be stuck with what they say if, if it, it comes to this. I think eventually it will come to this down the road, down the road. So whether it's cost effective or not, that'll be the judgment. And here he says loading up additional tests must be curbed. Maybe some would be better off taking pain medicine instead of surgery. Chronically ill and those toward the end of their lives are accounting for 80% of the total health care bill. See, all they're talking about is bucks. That's who said that. Okay, I, this is what kills me as a physician. One over-demanded service is prevention. Need I say more? I would place a commitment to excellence. Standardization is the best known method above clinical autonomy. So what he's saying is we don't want physicians to think. We want them just to go through these cookie cutter um, algorithms. Young doctors and nurses should emerge from training understanding the values of standardization. Don't think too much individual autonomy. This is the mindset of these people. Paul Krugman was saying, oh, well, yeah, it's this, again, this attitude, 90% of you can die type thing. Yeah. Uh, an example is a particular drug used for breast cancer. They said it's too expensive. We shouldn't use it. Again, they're just talking about cost. So here's the deal. Here's the reality. <coughs> Congress has its own health care that's not available to us. And we pay for their health care. And they have the Cadillac. So we get to pay more for less. Okay, Haeckel was also a free thinker who went beyond biology, anthropology, psychology, cosmology, uh, speculative ideas, possible fudging of data. Uh, possible. <laughs> Lack of empirical support for many of his ideas tarnished his scientific credentials. However, he remained an immensely popular figure in Germany and was considered a hero by his countrymen. He was. This is, notice where this came from Berkeley, University of Berkeley. So, this is the legacy 
of Haeckel, all the stuff we talked about here, okay, that went away, Oop, that went away, oh, that's not real either, oh, neither this. But, oh, that still lives in textbooks. Oh, that one went away. Okay. These drawings survive in textbooks. Okay. That one's not real. Oh, yolk sacks, having a hard time dying. That one was imagination. Oh, but these vestigial organs still live in textbooks. Subhuman types. Well, no, that's not real. But that evolutionary tree of life lives on in textbooks. Okay, no justification for abortion. But they still have this business of ape men in the books. School violence, unfortunately, is too common. Well, there's this business of subhuman types some folks want to hang on to. Killing embryos for embryonic stem search is still going on. Abortion, forced sterilization, euthanasia, genocide are going on. Okay, concept of junk DNA is finally dying. Yes, yes, I know this, Sydney. Everybody knows that, but look. Four wrongs squared minus two wrongs to the fourth power divided by this formula do make a right. Okay, well, that's their thought process. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him. As God, no were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So, do you have a headache from Dr. Haeckel? Partial birth abortion? No stem cell research. He gave me two tablets and told me to call him in the morning. <laughs> the Creator's truth. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So in other words, we are to run the show on the planet responsibly to use the gifts that God has given us in these resources. Responsibly. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living thing. Not from some pre-existing ape, but directly from the elements. The male was made from the dirt. Adam means earth. The word Adam means earth. That's why you ladies are always telling us guys to take a shower. All right. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, the side, and closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So the woman was made cleanly from the tissue from the side of the man. From the side to be equal partner, not from the head to be superior, not from the foot to be inferior, but to be our help meet. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's what we're supposed to be doing all the time. And do not be conformed 
I'm sorry, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So when Eve asked the serpent, was it washed? Well, I'm not sure. I guess it's been washed. <laughs> the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said that you shall not eat of the, every tree of the garden? So in other words, Satan's tactic is doubt. Did God really say? Did God really say? Uh, yes, he did. And for the disobedience, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, who sacrificed himself willingly on that cross, shedding his blood to pay the price for our sins. Since he was sinless, he's the only one that qualified to be that sacrifice. So that we can indeed have that personal relationship with him and have eternal life with him. In the real game, this is just the pregame down here. This is just the pregame. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23 we are told, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10.9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know Him. Do you know Him? Do you want to know Him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family. We encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.